2: Support comes from Big Y World Class Market, committed to the community with 80 years of service to New England families. Big Y's commitment includes support of WNPR and the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. If you like to eat, drink, and be merry, you're in the right place. Faith here with a welcome toast. It was my favorite scientist who said, when it comes to coughs, chocolate is more effective than codeine. Please feel free to consume this show podcast in one bite, two bites, or oops, I ate the whole thing. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, the place to have a good time. We have... Super Bowl food for you. We have all kinds. Whether you're just who knows, maybe you don't even watch the Super Bowl. Maybe you just like to have a, a gathering of people. Whatever it is, we have wall-to-wall party food on this show. We're going to also talk with the drunken botanist Amy Stewart about what foods produced all these spirits that we drink today. My treasured food buddies are here. Senior contributors Chris Prosperi, uh, and Mark Raymond and Anthony DeSerio everybody's out sick so what we've got here today is we have Alex Province who is our senior contributor, Gina Bareca? Who's always our senior contributor, one of the best people I know, and is author of "Make Mine a Double" because we have lots and lots of cocktails for you. Hey, everybody! Oh, hey, 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 hey. hey. <laughs> So we have this Super Bowl. It's just fun. So let me let me just get this, Alex. Do you have it on? Do you watch the Super Bowl? Yes. Okay. Do you? Well, I'm saying, do you watch the Super Bowl? No. <laughs> okay, Gina, I'm not even asking. No, maybe. we don't.
0: We do not. I married my husband, Michael, in part because he has the same lack of interest in sports that I have. And because I teach at UConn, I've taught at UConn for 28 years, people all over the country, when I give lectures, the first thing they say is, oh, you must go to all the games. And I say, as soon as I have a student who plays on either the men or women's basketball team or plays football, come to one of my classes, I would be happy to attend one of their games in 28 years that's never happened so no ever so I don't I'm not a sports fan and nothing has convinced me yet but I am a food fan and I'll use any excuse to indulge and
2: (laughs) I know from personal experience that you have lots of people over and there is always great food so that's the whole thing with this whether you're a Super Bowl fan I do like to watch those games and have all the food I think Uh it's so much fun so we're going to get into this we have a kit online for you that features all of our best dips. We have chilies. We're going to go through some of these. Yum. Finger foods. Uh, we have snacks. I'm, I'm talking about things like chocolate-covered potato chip popcorn. You might remember that. <laughs> we have crazy. cocktails, including one of my favorites that I feel didn't get enough attention when Anthony DiSario did this. Cinnamon toast is the name that we put on this cocktail. It is so delicious you can't believe it so I want to call your attention to that can we start with this particular one it's a favorite of mine for party food spicy garlicky chicken now this is one that I adapted from Melissa Clark one of my favorite people in the New York Times if she says something is good and does a recipe I am making it Mm. she is so terrific I'm such a fan this must be from what, eight, ten years ago that I started doing this. It's so great. This is the Asian spices. Roasted, ca- salted roasted cashews, mm-hmm. which is really the best part, and chopped cilantro, if you like cilantro, mm-hmm. a little bit of oil, garlic cloves, soy sauce, brown sugar, a couple of jalapeno peppers. And the juice of lime and uh, a little bit of water, of course, chicken thighs. I like the thighs because they're they are yeah. so darker meat, yep. uh. juicier. They have a little more fat in them. And some lime wedges for decorating at the end. This couldn't be easier. Out comes a food processor. You throw in the cashews, the chopped cilantro, the oil, garlic, soy sauce, brown sugar, jalapeno, a little bit of water, buzz that up, and you get this smooth paste And you season the chicken all over with that cashew mixture and a little salt and pepper. You could stick it in the refrigerator for hours and hours if you want. But Mm. a couple hours would be good. It kind of soaks in. And then uh, if you're a person who's got your grill out, Mm -hmm. then you would put this on the grill and you're good to go. You reserved a little bit of that cashew paste at the end for a kind of dipping sauce. But if not, and you've got the broiler going, that's how I do it. Under the broiler in a big tray, you can double or triple this recipe, and out it comes. It gets kind of crunchy, caramelized on the outside Mm. with those beautiful flavors. Oh, it's so good. It's perfect party food.
0: That's wonderful. I want to ask, um, what is it with this thing with cilantro? There are, this is only something I've discovered mm. recently that there are people who have a loathing they hate for cilantro. It. They really can't. Um, they can't eat it. They don't have an allergy, but they it taste like soap to them. Exactly. I think. That it must be some kind of genetic response or something. I mean, it, I think it's sort of inbred that they have. You yeah. know, that, yeah. So I've learned to ask people now. I mean, we have to go through all those routines where we say, "Do you have any special needs? <laughs> Do you have?" But now I ask because I use a lot of cilantro, but needs? I. Have to ask them. Do you have? Do you have? You know, an aversion to cilantro, and I'm shocked by the number of people who do. Yeah. So, if somebody, let's say, I'm cooking this. This sounds good. I'm cooking this for my friends. What can you substitute for the cilantro? Soap. Yeah. Well-
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you.
2: You, oh, palm mm.
0: you could do- You could do parsley.
2: You know, or skip it all together. Yeah. But parsley yeah. will work. Usually you know the poor cilantro people are probably so sick of parsley. Yeah. Right. Here on the mm. show we've learned
0: that that's why I assumed
2: because I'm mad for it, yeah, I will sometimes too. have a whole salad of just cilantro. I love it. With oh, scallions. I've never done that. Oh, it's so good. Uh-huh. But well, I mean it's just good to me. Yeah. and so, healthy. So we've got cocktails. I wanna say that this thing I'm about to talk with you about is terrific, this cocktail. It's a beer cocktail and Gina This really ties into your book, Make Mine a Double, Mm. Women and Drinking, the kind of history of women and drinking. This is a Shandy Gaff beer cocktail. I wish we could have uh, Anthony here because he's the one who taught me about the history of this. Mm. A Shandy Gaff is great with Asian food and so many party foods because it kind of skips across everything. It's one half Pilsner Ale Mm. and one half ginger beer ah that's ginger it. beer so th- Alex you know there's a tradition in Europe you're half Spanish of soda cocktails yeah right. and it's catching on more and more here beyond rum and ginger beer you know that we are starting to do this more
1: and it's, the ginger uh, beer I bet is refreshing too has it's a that bite to against it
2: against the lime mm. and the garlic wow. in that chicken dish it's really good but it goes with all kinds of party foods
0: and that sounds to me like what I used to drink because I'm not a beer fan. I mean, I sound incredibly un American now. I mean, I don't watch no football, Super no Bowl. I don't watch no sports. Cilantro. I don't watch. No, <laughs> no, I do cilantro, which oh. I think actually does make me un American because I really like cilantro. I also don't drink beer. But when I lived in England for five years, I used to drink Shandies. And Shandies are beer and lemonade. So I was thinking that that's the direction you were going in. And those were something that I still drink. I, I look forward to having them when I'm back in a London pub. I would never have it here. They
1: can have twice as many.
0: So (laughs) that
2: is the shandy, and this is there are a variety of shandies. This is the shandy gaff. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Now here's the story on the shandy, according to Anthony. He said, "Did you know that bartenders back in the old days, not so long ago, it turns out, first of all, women couldn't sit at the bar. Hmm. That was number one. But or number two, number one, bartenders refused to give women the same drinks." that they, as you know, Gina, that they gave to men. What they would allow women to have was a shandy. And it was either lemonade, half beer, half lemonade, Hmm. or ginger beer, but that's how it came to be. So if you were pitching the shandy cocktail in a movie, you'd say discrimination to delicious because it's really good right and and
0: that's what it was so interesting when we put together the essays for make mine a double with the subtitle is why women like us like to drink or not and we went back and looked at the history of women and drinking and actually during prohibition when nobody was allowed to drink was the time that women were allowed to sit with men at bars That was when that discrimination went away because in, let's say, pubs in England, there was the lounge area that women would be allowed to go in, but not the bar area. Women were actually prohibited from going into the bar area. And in a lot of New York bars, McSorley was the classic Mm -hmm. example. Women were not permitted at the bar at all. There had to be uh, legal action taken for women to be admitted into McSorley's for them to put in a ladies' toilet area. And it was... Only when everybody wasn't allowed to do it, that women were allowed to do it. You had to be snuck in. But then Mm. after
2: Prohibition, they went back to no women seated at the bar. Because in the 70s, believe it or not, I was pictured... In a bar, a newspaper came and took a picture because they passed a law in Connecticut that women could finally sit at the bar. In the 70s? In the 70s. My picture was on the front page of the newspaper sitting in a bar. (laughs) Oh,
0: my God. I'm so proud, Faith. Thank
2: you. Oh, wow. Can you believe it? So here we go. Let's dive into some of this Super Bowl food. And, Gene, I know you're a party food animal, yeah. so w- we'll see. Alex, start us off.
1: I've got El Real's chili con carne. And basically um, what makes this interesting is he toasts cumin seeds in a large skillet beforehand and then mixes it into everything else. And then he's taking bacon and sauteing it and then rendering out some of the fat, adding um, onions in and, and the drippings, and, and then adding his spices, chili powder, paprika, oregano, black pepper, thyme, Salt, garlic, into the cooked onions and then crumbles in the bacon, adds beef broth, some water and tomatoes, ancho chilies, beef, brings it to a boil, reduces it and then, you know, lets it simmer for a couple of hours. Yum.
2: We recently had him on the show, Gina, and he is just terrific. He's one of these guys, head of slow food in Texas. Mm understands that if you take a little time making a dish like this, chili is such a big deal, a Chilean barbecue in Texas, yeah. that the people will wait in line for hours and hours and hours to get into these joints.
1: And the fresh spices that he uses, he's like, you know, that's the heart of this chili But there's no beans in this one, remember? Yeah, Ah. that's
2: Texas chili style. Fewer beans, if any, in in most of their chilies. So all of these party foods that we're talking about on the show are online at org. So if you're getting ready, thinking about what you're going to make, just go online and you'll see everything right there. Okay, so we also have a very, very popular when we put this online before, and I put this on facebook, Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, and we had quite an exchange going oh, about yeah. this. Thousands of you getting this chili recipe, and that's Chris Prosperi's vegetarian chili. So good. I call it Fulham chili. It uh-huh. is so good. <laughs> it was so good. You cannot, we made it here in the studio, you, you just don't know the meat isn't in there. Huh. He uses butternut squash, and it has this kind of stringy, chewy mm. quality. Mm. And you, you swear you're eating meat it was so good that's yeah.
0: a, it's a fascinating thing that no vegetarian meal is it's always still comparing itself to meat products where there's no meat that says, this porterhouse taste tastes like a delicious squash and legume dish. You know? I mean, there's really, there's no equivalent to chickpeas. Mm. Right. I mean, that this is, you're not sitting there with bacon going, this tastes just like turkey bacon. It's so delicious. I mean, I want to get to the point where the vegetarian dishes are not comparing themselves to meat dishes anymore. Mm. Because we are still using that as a way to say they're absolutely delicious.
2: You're so smart to call that up because we had somebody on the show talking about the idea that there are things in meat that make us do that. Yeah. There are chemicals in meat and the minerals. hemoglobin, remember? Yes. There's stuff in meat that makes it Unlike anything else, and what they're starting to figure out is if you put yeast into dishes that aren't meat, the brain reads it as meat, and you think you're having meat. And so one of the products that does that is Marmite, that English salty... That you can get I'd have in the, that with
0: a shanty <laughs> in the
2: in the British section in the supermarket. If you put a little bit of that into your meat like chili, thing right? or your yeah. bean burger or whatever it is that's vegetarian, it will fool you. Like you wouldn't believe. That's wow. what they're telling us. But we haven't ma- tried this yet.
0: Marmite is scary. I could come for the marmite tasting. Marmite is have you ever had marmite? <laughs> oh it's yeah. So okay. concentrated. It's, On it's, toast. it's yeah, exactly. It's a little scary because it's as if it's from one vast vat of marmite that they have in Shropshire somewhere that they <laughs> you know, that they mine. And it, it really comes out of like the great tar pits. Oh. It's like the great marmite <laughs> pit that somebody is has There's in like, their yard.
2: Well it probably <laughs> is. There's dinosaurs it's, stuck yeah, inside. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's pure salt, so I, I don't mean, know why they make it fresh. Right, <laughs> right, I mean, but
0: it's, it's just, it, re, it It's like, like sourdough it starter. Exactly. From it just the Because it's yeast, right. It's just been there forever. It's <laughs> the just a form of nature. The tigers with the long teeth. Or the saber-toothed I mean? <laughs> tiger, saber saber tigers. saber-toothed tigers <laughs> have been, so yeah, it's a little bit. Preserved it, in it. It's also the plot of trying to get the hemoglobin or some um, uh, sort of replica of that. It's, was that the plot to True Blood, you know, the HBO thing about the vampires where they could make them stop drinking actual blood because they're mimicking it in some sort of false product. It's like <laughs> what we're going to end up doing. It's like, no, <laughs> do you have some more, might.
2: <laughs> <You> know, it's, <laughs> it's very sad. Yeah. It's one of the sadder things we've had here on the show. <laughs> now, as we go on with our party food, our celebration of getting ready for the Super Bowl, I wanted to issue what probably will be the last chance that I get to do this is an invitation to the Fuchmoo's signature event, and it is the first time we've certainly had the champagne, heart-to-heart champagne dinner dance before. We have never done this, and I am over the moon excited about this, a chocolate-inspired champagne dinner dance, February 11th, and we've asked all of the top chefs around the region to use chocolate, I mean cocoa powder, dark chocolate, milk chocolate, cocoa nibs that are a part of the inside of the nut itself from yeah. the chocolate bean in innovative ways to make both savory and sweet dishes. So Anthony De serio has created the most amazing welcome cocktail for this event. He'll be behind the bar doing it for you with sparkling wine. It tastes. It's just astonishing. We had it here on the show. So chocolate, we talked about this in our chocolate special recently, has a way as a flavoring agent of making dishes so startlingly good. And people don't know this. Gives it that
1: base note. You know, gives it depth and richness.
2: We did a cocoa van. We called it a oh. choco van. And you add <laughs> cocoa so powder at the yeah. end. You don't know what is in there that is making it so rich, so, so unctuous. Good. I've been working with the team, and we designed the menus and the matching wines with the chefs. You are not going to believe the dishes, including, I just want to say this, we had Mr. Chocolate, the famous Jacques Therese, on the show. Oh. He designed a dish on that show, and we have chef making it. That's it's really quite something. So mm-hmm. here is the address if you would like to come. Wines from Frederick Wildman and Sons. The um, Heart to Heart Dinner Dance is February 11th at River House at Goodspeed Station in Haddam, Connecticut, Contributing chefs and restaurants include Manuel Romero of Olea, Plan B Restaurant Group, Jason Sobosinski of Casius, Matthew Buffard of Chamard Winery and Bistro, David Caudill of Salute, uh, Prasad Ternumala of Oaxaca and Tali, on and on the lists go. Thank you to our sponsors, UConn Health's Pat and Jim Calhoun Cardiology Center, because we all know chocolate is healthy, uh, <laughs> and support, of course, from River House at Good Speed, Power Station Events, and Frederick Wildman & Sons Wine Portfolio. I hope you will join us. We will be there to meet you. Uh, music from Alex Nakamovsky and his singers. We're all excited. To reserve tickets, you can go online to WNPR. Heart to Heart. dot O-R-G, WNPR. Heart to Heart. dot org always a sellout. I think we have a few tickets left but I would jump in there if I were you. We are going to take a short break here on the show. Then we have all kinds of party food including the best buffalo chicken dip I have ever had and don't forget the drunken botanist Amy Stewart and so much more. More mouthwatering conversation and fun ahead on the Faith Middleton Fooch I hope you will make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. We're online now at Fooch We have a free podcast for you, meaning you'll never miss a drop of pleasure. Just sign up for it once at our site, and we'll automatically send you our show every week so you can listen on your schedule. Also, discover our delicious, curated food, wine, events, cocktail recommendations. We love talking with you, so we hope you'll stop by the site often and say hi to us. We're always online at foodschmooze.org. I am with my treasured food buddies, senior contributor Alex Province and Gina Bureka, who is author of, for purposes of this show, Make Mine a Double, Though in about, um, I would say, a month and a half, we are looking forward to the publication of her new book, If You Lean In, Will Men Just Look Down Your Blouse? Um, (laughs) Okay, so we're getting you ready for the Super Bowl. We have the entire kit up there if you're looking for finger foods, chilies, entrees, snacks, trays of things to put in and pull out of the oven, cocktails, beer cocktails. It's all up there right now at org. Alex, go for it.
1: Oh, I've got a good one. So this is finger food, buffalo chicken meatballs. So basically, you're just going to take in a bowl ground chicken, some eggs, some bread crumbs, and he adds blue cheese to this, and he mixes it all together. And then mm-hmm. and he also adds a little of uh, buffalo wing sauce that's prepared. And then you're now going to take some tomato sauce, and he adds uh, the buffalo wing sauce mixture into that and heats this up in a stock pot and then forms the meatballs in the ping pong size drops them in till they're cooked 15-20 minutes yum
2: yeah (laughs) no they really are
0: good that sounds absolutely wonderful all of these foods that we're mentioning for the occasion for the ritual of Super Bowl Sunday (laughs) are all foods that you would not let's say cook for a women's book club This is a very gender-specific food. We're talking spicy. We're talking things that, I'm sorry, not to...
1: Non-nutritious?
0: Well, not, no. They sound delicious, certainly, but they're things you could mostly eat with your hands. I mean, they're things that you could put your face close to the plate and just pick it up like, you know, between... Like a wolf? Like between your teeth.
1: (laughs) Or in a trough. (laughs)
0: You know, that you basically need a tarp while you're eating it. You're not wearing a fine, you know, merino wool. So what do we Um,
2: think that's about?
0: I think that this is part of the ritual of this sort of male bonding exercise. Well the women are part of it, certainly, um with the football thing. But that it, it really has to be it's somehow visceral, like this is stuff out of the cave. It's not the finger foods, it's not like the little tea sandwiches.
1: Not well rounded.
0: These are not well rounded. <laughs> um the fact that we're always emphasizing what kind of liquor it goes with. So what fascinates me about this
2: is when Emerald came along, Emerald did this in a really big way in my lifetime. We kind of invited guys to be part of the cooking experience beyond grills. Yeah. Certainly guys were able to say, I am the master of the grill in this house and feel... It made him you, feel you okay know, to cook. Bam, when he was talking about heat. And yeah. Many men have sort of, uh, not weaker taste buds, but they're not as strong as the taste buds of women Mm -hmm. classically. um, I mean, there are tests to prove this, and so they're much more interested in anything that's really strong flavors (laughs) and heat and spice. Really appeals to them. Yeah, I so mean, there's that. no
0: vichyssoise on this menu. I'm noticing, right? There's nothing. <laughs> that, haven't you wouldn't know. come
1: to my party. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> there's, there's nothing where you serve it in the tiny cup, and everyone gets careful their own with the China. Individual <laughs> tiny cup and a very small spoon. Now, I'm not the vichyssoise kind of cook, but I will serve lasagna. I consider myself. A great uh-huh. cook for large numbers of people because I come from an Italian family. So when I cook, I cook for the immediate family of 117, no matter if there are only four <laughs> people coming for dinner. <laughs> there will be leftovers. And um, so my husband has developed a fondness for fennel sausage. And so I'll use that as the basis Then I put in. It very much sounds like the... Do you the, take the
2: sausage out of the casing? I do take I'm the eating? sausage out
0: of the casing. Mm-hmm. And it's it, that's sort of my least favorite. Do you use jar sauce
2: <laughs> or do you make the sauce? No, I
0: actually, I start with a rouse sauce. Yeah. I mean, I like rouse sauce. This is close yeah. to a yeah. real, my grandmother's marinara sauce. And then I will add to that. I will put in Madeira. I like a little Madeira base. So I put that in. I, I will crush the fresh garlic because I really like garlic. I will use fresh, good oregano. That'll be. In so there, you're so.
2: doctoring. Ah, that's
0: uh, cool. Yes, yes, of course. Making I will it adulterate. Your own. And then it's really the meat. So I'll put in the sausage separately, but then I'll cook the meatballs and then put the cooked meatballs in the sauce. With so the, the sausage. With the sauce. So the sausage is free-floating,
3: mm-hmm. but
0: the meatballs have been cooked separately. That sounds and so then good. that's what goes into the meat part. And then there's just all the ricotta and all the fresh mozzarella cheese that even supermarkets are now making. There is just nothing
2: like a lasagna as a party food. It's so easy, especially if it's game day for you. It's so easy. And you make it in
0: advance. You make it the night before.
1: It probably gets better.
2: All right. So, wanted to tell you that we have, as part of our Super Bowl or any weekend party (laughs) kit that's up right now, Carol's Easy Tacos. And you can use steak, chicken, or shrimp. And she goes right ahead and puts garlic powder in those tacos with a little white vinegar. And it gives them snap. To match Alex Province's chicken meatballs he was talking about from Chris Prosperi, we have the most amazing dip. So, if you are someone who likes buffalo dip, and I yeah. do, I love buffalo wing anything. I'm just yep. Chris made for us, and it was Brian Cole at Metro Beast in Simsbury who did this. Brian created this buffalo chicken dip that is so crazy in terms of its ingredients. And so good. It is, without a doubt, one of the best dips I have ever had. And it's buffalo chicken dip with cream cheese and crumbled blue cheese, Mm. onion powder, hot pepper sauce to taste. We like Frank's here on the show. We all seem to. And here it is, canned chicken breast (laughs) from the supermarket. Over by the tuna, there are cans of chicken meat. I remember Chris was saying this, and I was looking, I was just kind of staring (laughs) at him, trying to keep my face completely straight, Mm -hmm. thinking, I don't know what's in that. I don't know if I'm going to eat that. I had this dip. I was so crazy. I went right to the supermarket. And bought two cans of the canned chicken meat. I think it's, that
0: comes from the same pit as the marmite comes from. That doesn't come awesome. from a chicken. It's, it's not chicken so of the sea. No. Oh my and wait, but I have to ask about that recipe. I know it's online and I'll go look, but the canned chicken goes into the dip. Yeah. Itself. yeah.
2: All the ingredients go into a bowl. They, okay, so yeah. you've got cream cheese, blue cheese, the canned chicken breast, onion powder, and hot pepper sauce that all goes into a bowl together you mix it up it's in an oven proof dish right. it goes into the oven put a little more hot sauce on the top if you're a nut about hot mm-hmm. sauce but you don't have to and there you go out it comes bubbling hot and you can dip anything you want into if you want to do vegetables you could do that if you wanted to Celery. do crackers bread whatever whatever you want Amazing. Huh? And we have another one from Jim Villas, who lives in the Hamptons, the cookbook author, Fried Deviled Eggs. Oh, We're going to get these. to that oh, in I a second. Alex, uh, what do you have? And then I'm going to Genius App.
1: So I have Peggy Fallon's Rockin' Moroccan Salsa. <laughs> so basically, it's, it's your typical salsa with tomatoes, red onions, cilantro, olive oil. But she adds lemon zest, garlic, ground cumin, Ground cinnamon, turmeric, sweet paprika, and a little cayenne pepper, and some salt.
2: So that Moroccan twist in a salsa is such a nice idea. So if Mm. you're going to make a salsa from scratch, I have to say, supermarkets have some great salsas. And I don't mean the jarred ones. I mean the fresh ones in the refrigerator container. Wow, they're really, really good. Okay, this is Jim Villis's fried deviled eggs. This is a southern thing. And he even admits this is so over the top. (laughs) But... I uh, like it already. You've yeah. got you've got you know you make boiled eggs and you cut them in half lengthwise and the yolks go into a bowl and you're adding mayonnaise and mustard and chives and salt and pepper and you mash it up with a wooden spoon and it becomes very smooth and then you put that yolk mixture back into the empty egg white casing and then you heat up oil in a frying pan. And you dredge those stuffed eggs in a little bit of flour and then some beaten egg and then (laughs) breadcrumbs, okay? Oh, my God. Then you lower them with a spotted spoon into the oil, and really what you've got at bars in the old-school way, you will see Scotch eggs. Yeah, Scotch eggs, yeah. In essence, that's what this is.
0: Wow. You know,
2: lots of Scots in the South. That sounds
0: like an astonishing amount of work. Oh no! No, it's just some oil. I would make such a mess. You all would? Of, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking <laughs> everything you have said so far. No, I'm thinking I, I could do this, and actually, you can take a
2: yolk out.
0: I could take, but then to put it back in, and then to fry it, it without it, put it back in with a spoon. No, I know I could. I could make a, like a double day. Egg. Egg. Perfect, I could, but then the
2: dredging is scaring you. The
0: dredging will it will all separate. I'm going to be frying the egg yellow, different from the thing. It will all come apart. It you know what my kitchen going, going to look like. Absolutely. I swear to you,
2: I want to give you confidence it doesn't. And it's really delicious. I mean, I it bet. is a dish where you go to the hospital and look Yeah, lie no, down. They,
0: it comes with defibrillators. <laughs> Obviously, it's, it comes with a defibrillator. But I'm mean, feeling I mean, faint. Yeah, exactly. But I, I mean, <laughs> I want to see somebody make this. I really want to watch <laughs> it. Yeah. We're doing party food here <laughs> on the Food Schmooze,
2: whether it's for your Super Bowl watching or if you're not a Super Bowl fan, but you think it would be fun to have people over. We've got a giant kit online with all kinds of finger food and dips and chilies and entrees and all kinds of cocktails. Uh, Do you remember we were featuring on the show that whipped feta dip where you've got feta cheese, extra virgin olive oil, lemon juice, lemon zest, mint, pepperoncini, those peppers that are kind of vinegary with a little bit of heat to them, and then pizza triangles and lots of vegetables. This dip is so delicious if you're a feta fan. Alex, This then... is an
1: easy one. Salsa fresca. Basically, you're taking tomatoes, white onions, cilantro, some jalapeno peppers, fresh lime juice, salt. You put it all together in a bowl. You let it sit for 30 minutes for the flavors to marry, and then it goes covered into the refrigerator for eight hours. Yeah.
2: Really, really simple. And my crazy easy one is to take a, a can of chickpeas, can or two, rinse them because they sit in that weirdo juice Mm -hmm. and um, (laughs) throw them into the blender. (laughs) And then I put in a jar of whatever sauce makes me wild at the time. Most often you'll find jars of Trader Joe's Indian masala simmering sauce, they Ah. call it. It's delicious. I just dump in a jar of that, whiz it up in the blender, not even the food processor, but you could use that. And there, I've got the most delicious hummus in two seconds, yeah. and uh, costs almost nothing. So. Gina, what's I, your, your really super fast I, this appetizer? This is the
0: easiest thing in the world, and everybody feels fancy. You can get fairly inexpensive jars of caviar. It's not real caviar; it's whatever fish row that the marmite has laid. <laughs> you know, it's in your. But you know, for nine bucks, you can get a little jar of caviar. It looks like caviar, and I will chop up a nice pita bread and make it into high the little tray, like high well quality, behaved. exactly a very kind pita bread, <laughs> nothing wild, nothing feral. And then I get locks. I cut up the locks. I I put the locks out on the pita bread. (laughs) If you fancy, get some marscapone cheese, otherwise you get creme fraiche or cream cheese. Fresh dill, you put the caviar on top of the salmon, on top of the pita bread, you put a little dill on top, People feel like, oh my god, I'm getting salmon and caviar and fresh dill. I have low run friends, but they are thrilled <laughs> by this. It's, it's wonderful really fun. and it's really mm-hmm.
2: easy. Do you toast the pita, or
0: you just? Yes, no, it? I do
2: toast the pita. Thank you. Okay. I no, no, I, maybe you wouldn't. I don't. I don't even no, know. No, just so just... that
0: there's a little Christmas. You don't yeah. want it so that your Crunch. mouth bleeds. You know, sometimes they get a little too toasty. I don't like that kind of toast. But and because <laughs> it would, would fit in, it would fit in. <laughs> <With the laughs> right. (laughs) With the whole thing, if we were living back in a place where you could get the, or I mean, I live in the woods. I live in Storrs, Connecticut, but um, so that's why it's all feral. If you could get those little bleenies, the little bleenies are really what you want to put them on. Uh, All right, very quickly, I want to tell you. Also
2: online, we have. Olive oil and Parmesan popcorn, how to make that. That's a nice thing to put out. We have two cocktails in our next segment when Amy Stewart, the drunken botanist, as we refer to her, it's the name of her book, joins us here on the Food Schmooze. All right, we love the local. Please support your local food growers and food makers for on-demand podcast delivery of the Food Schmooze Party every week. And to find all of our recommendations, streaming videos, everything we've got, go to foodschmooze.org, and we'll be right back.
1: We're drinking town
0: with a football problem.
2: We have one more mouth watering bite of the Fuchsmous coming up. Here's something great to know about. Sign up for the app called NPR1. Just download it from the iPhone App Store or your Android device. And once you do, you can set WNPR as your local station. Couldn't be easier. Download the free app NPR1 and start listening. Let's party on more Fuchsmous. This is the Fugmuse Party offering the richness of life coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York, including Westchester County, the East End of Long Island, and of course the Hamptons. The senior producer is Robin Doyen Aiken to hear the show on WNPR it airs Thursdays at 3, Saturdays at noon and you can find podcasts, all of our party recommendations, party food, cocktails wines, everything online right now at foodschmooze.org Talk with us on Facebook too, search Faith Middleton All right, very quickly to wind up because we've got Amy Stewart and Gina Bareca here. Alex, your cocktail you've done for the Super Bowl a key lime cocktail, I love it. Tell let me quickly mm. watch All right, on that. real
1: easy. So take some sweetened condensed milk, some regular milk, throw it in a shaker with ice, a couple tablespoons of lime juice, some vodka. Shake, shake, shake till it's frothy. Serve it in a tall Collins glass with some ice cubes and, and grind some lime zest. it's not overly sweet, is it? No, just one tablespoon of condensed yeah. milk.
2: That is such a great fun frothy one. Frothy
1: and delicious. It's like so good a spoonful of pie.
2: Brunch, <laughs> good for <laughs> brunches too. Uh, Anthony DiCerio made a contribution, a cocktail he called Charlotte's Garden. He likes Hendrick's gin for this, lemon juice, and then he makes a mixture of chamomile and lavender tea. You can buy that in many, many stores with some simple syrup, sugar and water. In this case, he uses honey. And then he puts in fever tree elderflower tonic water and makes this what he calls Charlotte's Garden, named for Charlotte Voice, who taught him the art of cocktail making many years ago. We also are featuring for the Super Bowl, cinnamon toast, Anthony's cocktail tequila or aged rum, a little apple cider, lime juice, ginger beer, simple syrup, which is sugar and water with a touch of maple syrup, and then you mix cinnamon and sugar the way you do for cinnamon toast, and you rub the edge of your glass Mm. in that, and then put the cocktail in there and sip it through the cinnamon sugar <laughs> mixture on the edge of the glass Yum. it is so delicious okay so that is the cinnamon toast cocktail we've got a bunch of cocktails up there the beer cocktail too all of it at org to get you ready for the Super Bowl or any weekend gathering Amy Stewart is author or is also known as the drunken botanist and um, that is because she has done something so fascinating I don't think that anybody had thought to do And this book really took off, telling us about all the drinks, the history of them, that are made from herbs and vegetables and spices. So we have sake made of rice. We have beer with wheat. On and on it goes. Potatoes, vodka. Amy, welcome to the show.
3: Hi. Thanks for having me. It's
2: so great to have you here. What made you do this?
3: Uh, Well, you know, I've been writing about plants in the natural world for a long time. And... um One day I was sitting in a bar with a friend and we started looking at all the bottles behind the bar and naming all the plants in those bottles. And of course, Hmm. all alcohol is made from plants with incredibly few exceptions. So it's pretty easy to do if you know your plants. And uh, I thought it would just be interesting to, to go plant by plant instead of spirit by spirit, and really trace the history of, well, how did rice end up getting made into alcohol? How did the agave plant ended up being made into alcohol.
2: Who did that? Who said, looked at that agave plant right. and said, I can make something with it?
3: Uh, how know, did that happen? Sort of like, who was the first person to eat an artichoke heart? You know, you yeah. kind of wonder. wonder. Um, you know, I think what happened with the agave in particular, now this is a plant that some people know as the century plant, so this very spiky plant that grows in the desert. It's actually related to asparagus and related to a few other very unlikely plants like lilies that you wouldn't really imagine. But, you know, you have to imagine people living in this environment where they don't have really abundant sources of fruit or sugar. The desert, it can be pretty meager sometimes. And so they figure out that these century plants are actually hoarding tremendous amounts of water and even sugars in some kind of weird forms. So I imagine that it was desperation more than anything else. <laughs> they figured out they yeah. could hollow out this plant and find something inside there that they could ferment. And then it becomes an
2: art. You know, one person does it a little bit better or a little differently from someone else, and they say, oh, even probably during cave times, you should try Goron's (laughs) tequila over there, (laughs) you
3: know. Well, yeah, And, and in the case of agave, the first drink they made was something called pulque. If you've ever been to Mexico, you may have had pulque. You can only drink it fresh. It's not something that can really be put in a can and sold. And then, of course, eventually they made tequila, which is what the plant's known for today.
2: Yeah, so then all the machinery comes in, and so things start being distilled. And I wonder if that distillation process, does it in any way ruin the wonder of the plant mixtures, the polyphenols, the the antioxidant qualities of these plants? Do you know if it does?
3: what distillation does, let's take an example like brandy because everyone's more or less familiar with how wine is made. So if you imagine wine and then you distill it, which basically means that you boil it, every molecule has its own boiling point, right? So the ethyl alcohol boils and lifts up in the form of steam when it hits its boiling point. And other things lift up in the steam when they hit their boiling point. And if you're making brandy, you try to capture the molecules you want, the ones that taste good, the ones that aren't too toxic, (laughs) and uh, and you make something to drink. So, yes, things are lost in the distillation process, but usually on purpose because the distiller is being very selective about what they want and what they don't want.
2: They're going for taste more than anything else.
3: Yeah, right, exactly. They're going for flavor, and they might be thinking about texture even a little bit, sort of the mouth feel, if you imagine how rum feels in your mouth versus how other spirits do. But mostly it's flavor, and they're trying to capture the essence of that plant or what they can through the distillation process.
2: Amy Stewart, author of The Drunken Botanist. What a fascinating subject for a book. And now I'd love it if the two of you would talk to each other a little bit, because we have Gina Baraka here as a professor at the University of Connecticut, and Gina did a book called Make Mine a Double. Gina.
0: I was looking at what alcohol and drinking had to do in the lives, particularly of women, and why it differs from how it does with men and why women get together and that we feel like we're doing something vaguely illicit and why it was always something that was, even Virginia Woolf talked about the idea that men's colleges at Oxford and Cambridge always had great storehouses of fine wines and brandies and how this was part of the male experience of coming together and something that they could all do, the professors and the students, but the women's colleges had no such thing, that the women's colleges, even when they were founded at these gust institutions were sitting around and drinking water. The women could never have the same coming together experience after dinner that the men did. My introductory essay was about the history of women and drinking. It was always considered something dangerous for women because it meant that they were having fun. And any time that women were having fun has always been dangerous to the culture, you know. Like if one woman had fun, like Eve was taking the apple, well, you know, she—that was a big start that women having fun. Was let a me push
2: idea. back on that for just a second. Was there any sense in that paternalistic way that men saw themselves as our job is when they, they weren't ravaging the women, but right. when they were,
0: you know, <laughs> right. saying
2: our job is to protect these women if they become loose yep. from alcohol, disinhibited. Mm-hmm. And I'm not there to protect her. What might happen to her? Of course. So was it? So to what degree was it that well-meaning versus what you're saying, which is we don't want them to have too much freedom? I
0: think that the paternalism and chivalry uh, is based on the chivalry. same idea. You have swapped out your idea of being responsible and having agency as an actual person for the idea that somebody's going to throw their cloak down over a puddle so you don't get your little <laughs> shoes wet. Not that I'm bitter. Cause <laughs> I wouldn't be. Every woman who raises a glass is actually raising a little bit of hell and breaking a little bit of the glass ceiling, which happens to be, in our case, what Amy and I are talking about, I guess, made of ice cubes.
3: One thing that I find interesting, thinking about alcohol's earliest origins, is women were really involved with the invention of alcohol to begin with. Women were really responsible for processing food and dealing with food, however it was gathered. So I think we can claim ownership over probably the invention of beer. <laughs> the invention of wine. That was <laughs> us. We did that. We did that. Did women really do that? Well, you know, I mean, obviously we weren't there. We can't know for sure. But these are the kinds of questions that anthropologists and archaeologists are very interested in right now how and when was alcohol invented and why we used to think it was a happy accident you know someone left a bucket of grain soaking in water and woke up the next morning and there was beer but probably it was more deliberate than that and uh... we certainly know that women were the ones hanging around the house getting that stuff done it's very plausible and even today you know you look at traditional african cultures you look in the pacific islands you see women primarily making alcohol
2: So, Amy, in terms of, say, rum, that to me doesn't seem so strange that someone figured out that sugar cane could be turned into this spirit called rum. That works in my head more than someone staring at a a spiky agave plant and thinking...
3: Right. Well, you know, in every case, what we were looking for was sugar, um, looking at the history of agriculture. You know, another great example is corn. Today we think of corn as this plant that it puts up a big green stalk, and then there's this enormous yellow collection of grains on top. Corn used to be treated much like sugar canes that had a very sweet stalk. People mostly gathered it for the sugar in the stalk. And even the earliest uses of corn and alcohol were corn stalk wine. You would crush the corn stalk and get a sugary juice out of the stalk and ferment that to have some kind of alcohol.
2: I'd try it. Ooh, that's fascinating. I
3: had yeah. no idea. You know, when Europeans first came to what we call the New World, they'd never seen corn before. And the corn that they saw doesn't look like the corn we eat today. And we were just kind of figuring out what to do with corn at that time. But Native people knew that they could crush the stalk. And get a liquid out of it Or that they could even chew the fibers in the stalk To get some sweetness And that definitely turns up in archaeological excavations
2: So the cacao bean, of course, gives us chocolate And we hear these stories that chocolate was so beloved That it was even served I think it might have been in Spain at mass I don't know if that is true But that is the story that goes around What interests me is whether somebody figured out That chocolate could somehow be in involved with alcohol?
3: Well, you know, those beans are, and when we say bean, you have to imagine this very large fruit (laughs) is really what they look like, are fermented as part of the processing of this big, pulpy fruit into chocolate. You know, they separate out the fat and ferment what's left. So in the case of a lot of these really ancient plants that we've used for a lot of different reasons over time, it's the sugars in that plant, and it's letting yeast, which are little microscopic organisms that are all over us and in the air we breathe and everywhere, these little yeast go to work eating that sugar, and they create a waste product after they eat, like we all do. <laughs> Only theirs is alcohol, and, and the different ways that it gets used for everything from chocolate to every kind of alcohol we drink is pretty extraordinary.
2: I think I'm trying to get at why the history, when you look at the history of chocolate, I don't see mention of alcohol way at the beginning, the way we do with these other products.
3: That... Well, it's more of a flavoring, like another spice. You can't get enough fermentable sugar out of chocolate to make it worthwhile to actually ferment it and but, get alcohol from it. But, but
2: you were have- they mixing chocolate, for instance, when they were starting to make ale and then they figured out how to make chocolate and that it melted? Was somebody doing a chocolate beer long ago? I wonder why there's no reference to something like that. Or maybe there is.
3: You know, not that I know of, but chocolate obviously came over to Europe in the 1500s when all the other great botanical exploration was happening.
2: The reason I I seem to be stuck on this is that I was talking on our Facebook page about this creme de cacao Mm -hmm. uh, made by this exquisite maker. They do these very small artisanal things. You can get it in any liquor store now. It's called Tempest Fugit. Yes. it's the most, you know it, Amy, it's the most incredible creme de cacao you've ever had in your life, worth the little bit of extra money, and very real, gorgeous. Put that in the bottom of a glass with dark beer, and it was such an incredible marriage (laughs) of those two things. And so it naturally goes together. Um, Sure. There's a Super Bowl thing, by the way. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) 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 Hey, Mm -hmm. Amy Stewart, what do you like to drink? Do you drink alcohol?
3: Um, Sure. You know, I confess that I'm a boring drinker at home. I've been on a real rosé kick, as a lot of people have Mm. in the last few years. I love vermouth, so I drink a lot of vermouth. Um, People don't realize that a good vermouth is wonderful on its own. It's nothing but wine with herbs and spices that have been added to it to change the flavor. And I think equal parts sweet and dry vermouth is about the most wonderful drink there is. So I usually have a little bit of that going. Oh,
2: I wish we had more time. I hope you come back. Absolutely. Okay. Amy Stewart, who is author of The Drunken Botanist, and Gina Bareca, who is author of Make Mine a Double. Thank you, Alex Province. We're on WNPR Thursdays at 3, Saturdays at noon. Uh, weekdays, tune in for my 60-second food schmoozes and join the conversation with us. We're always up for a good time online at foodschmooze.org. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton.
0: Everybody eats when they come to mind.
2: this is the place to enjoy the richness of life. Sharing our local and national discoveries with you makes me want to get up in the morning. The gang and I hope you'll come back soon and often.